0: And welcome to another edition of ABI Podcast. I'm John Hartkin, ABI's Public Affairs Officer. We appreciate you listening. Today's podcast features experts examining the Supreme Court's February 22nd opinion in Barton Warfer versus Buckley. Joining us today are Professor Lawrence Poneroff, who is a former dean of three U.S. law schools and is currently Professor Emeritus at Tulane University Law School. He, along with Professor Raphael Pardo, filed an amicus brief in support of the respondent in the case. Also joining us is Professor David R. Cuny, who is an adjunct professor of law at Georgetown University Law Center. He recently retired from the law firm of Whiteford, Taylor, and Preston, LLP, and was previously a partner at Sidley Austin, where he specialized in business reorganizations and major civil litigation. He is the counsel of record on an amicus brief by former bankruptcy judges and law professors in support of the petitioner. Our moderator for today's podcast is ABI editor-at-large Bill Rochelle. Bill provides his authoritative take on legal developments affecting bankruptcy practice in his namesake ABI publication, Rochelle's Daily Wire. Rochelle published for Bloomberg every day from 2007 to 2015. And prior to his second career in journalism, he practiced bankruptcy law for 35 years. Now I'll turn it over to our moderator, Bill Rochelle. Go ahead, Bill.
1: Thank you, John. We are here today, just like John said, to discuss Barton Werfer versus Buckley. This was the first of what will be four bankruptcy decisions to be handed down by the Supreme Court in this current term that ends in late June, this case I think will be known as Barton Werfer, and it deals with Section 523A2A of the Bankruptcy Code. That is the section which says that a debt is non-dischargeable if it resulted from and I quote, false pretenses, a false representation or actual fraud. The facts before the Supreme Court in Barton Werfer were actually pretty simple. A man and a woman who were not then married formed a partnership, or shall we say, they at least admitted when the rubber hit the road in bankruptcy court that they were partners. Together, they purchased a home, refurbished the home, And resold it. The buyer was unhappy because after purchasing the home, the buyer discovered defects in the home that were not mentioned in the required disclosure statement under state law. So the buyer sued the man and the woman and ultimately won a $200,000 judgment for fraud. The couple responded by filing Chapter 7 bankruptcy petitions, and you know what happened next. The purchasers of the home initiated an adversary proceeding for a declaration that the debt was non dischargeable as to both the husband and the wife under Section 523A2A for fraud. It's actually not much of a difficult case as to the man, the husband, because he was the one who prepared the disclosure statement. But the wife argued that she had nothing to do with the disclosure statement. She played no part in the fraud, and she therefore should not be held to have a non-dischargeable debt because she was not guilty of any wrongdoing. The bankruptcy judge ruled against both, and held that the debt was non-dischargeable as to both the husband and the wife. The Ninth Circuit agreed with the bankruptcy court and held that the debt was non-dischargeable as to the wife. That decision from the Ninth Circuit solidified an existing split of circuits which went to the Supreme Court. The second, fourth, seventh, and eighth circuits had held that enter is required under that section before a debt is non-dischargeable. In other words, the debtor must have been guilty himself or herself of fraud for the debt to be non-dischargeable. On the other hand, uh, we held have the fifth, sixth, ninth, and eleventh circuits, which all held that the debt can be derivative. In other words, so long as it's a debt for fraud, it don't matter in those circuits whether or not the debtor himself or herself was guilty of fraud." Well, that's the state of play through the through the uh, circuit court. And Professor Poneroff, I would like to ask you, what is it that the Supreme Court held? What was the ruling? And why did they rule the way they did?
2: Thank you, Bill. Um, in a what is these days rare, unanimous decision, the court held for the respondent, uh, the buyer of the property, on the basis that the debt was non-dischargeable under Section 523A2A, regardless of the debtor's own culpability on the basis of imputed liability for her partner's admitted fraud. Uh, The rationale was grounded purely in a textualist reading of the code and application of common law rules. Um, In getting there and getting to this result, the court rejected three principal arguments that had been raised by the petitioner, Barton Werfer. The first, of course, was that although 523 A2A is written in a passive voice, logically, it should be read as referring to debts obtained by the debtor's fraud. Uh, The court, of course, disagreed. Finding the use of passive voice means the focus is on an event that occurs without respect to a specific actor, and therefore, without regard to that actor's intent or culpability. And the relevant legal context here, common law fraud, going back to Fields v. Mann, has long recognized that fraud liability is not limited to the actual wrongdoer. Secondly, um, Barton Werfer also relied on the inconsistency in 523 A two B and C. Both of were limited to culpable actions by the debtor. Here the court's response, as you would predict, uh, was to reference the well-recognized rule that when Congress includes particular language in one section of the statute but omits it in another section of the same act, that choice is generally taken to be deliberate. Uh, The court also concluded there is good reason to believe that Strang v. Bradner, which was decided under the Bankruptcy Act of 1867, remains good law under um, the code. And Strang recognized applicability of vicarious liability in dischargeability litigation under a precursor to 523A2A. Now that part of the opinion was interesting, and I think it's a point we'll come back to in the discussion, so I'll leave it there. Um, finally, the petitioner resorted to the policy argument that a um, uh, uh, holding a faultless debtor responsible for uh, a debt via non-dischargeability runs counter to a fresh start policy. And it does. But the court dismissed that argument on the basis that the code is just not that single-minded that the 523A exceptions Represent competing interests like domestic support obligations that outweigh the policy. Recall this was a case about dischargeability of a particular debt, not entitlement to discharge. The debtor did get her discharge. And in this case, the court simply read the statute to mean that the debtor's interest in a fresh start bends a knee, if you will, to the policy of protecting victims um, of fraud.
1: Thank you, Professor. Before we start picking apart the uh, opinion itself, written, by the way, by uh, Justice Amy Coney Barrett, what about the concurrence? Justice Sotomayor wrote a concurrence in which Justice Jackson joined. What does that concurrence say and is it important or not?
2: Well, um, I think not particularly so because it makes an a point that was implied in the majority opinion. The concurrence simply says we want to highlight the fact that uh, there was an agency relationship here. This was a partnership and that um non-business, in the case of non-business partners, such as uh, a uh, a mar- married spouses, that does not automatically give rise to a legal partnership um, or agency. And that is true under state um, partnership law.
1: Well, so in other words, we have two justices interpreting the unanimous decision to mean that, non-dischargeability results only if there was an agency or a partnership. But Professor Cuny, I want to ask you, do you think that the concurrence may not carry the day in the future? I mean, will married couples, do you think possibly both have non-dischargeable debts as a result of this decision?
3: Yeah, I I, I very much do worry about that. And I think the um... The concurrence may have been well-intentioned, but I, I think there was a very serious ambiguity in this decision about whether it does or doesn't cover you know, any, any time a married couple undertakes to engage in some sort of quasi-commercial activity uh, and can be deemed to be partners. I mean, this whole notion, just to go back to basics... This case you know, kind of rose and fell on the notion that they were that they had, quote, formed a partnership. But you can search high and low through the appellate records, and there's no notion that they really formed it. They, they may have been deemed to, to have formed it, and they may have said that, but they didn't sign a partnership agreement. They never used the word partnership. I actually doubt they have a clue as to what a partnership actually may have meant. So I don't know. I I guess what I'm saying is that I'm going to predict that in future cases, aggressive creditors are going to go after both spouses where there's only one spousal fraud, and they're going to enlarge this notion of agency, enlarge this notion of partnership, and that one of the very unfortunate side effects of this decision is we're going to have more challenges to dischargeability under this section. And I do want to point out, by the way, I mean, just to, to put a human face on this case. You know, this is a uh, devastating result, a, a really you know tragic proportions. The uh, the potential liability for Kate uh, was calculated and put in one of the briefs at about ten million dollars by the time she reaches the age of eighty five, assuming that she can never pay off this debt. So what began as a two hundred thousand dollar state court judgment, it has you know has the potential to morph into a multi million dollar unrepayable obligation. So it's it's a devastating case, um, and so I don't to answer your question, Bill. I don't think the concurrence is going to fix, you know, what needs to be fixed. The only thing that's going to fix it is going to be a congressional amendment. We need a Barton Wuerffel uh-huh.
1: amendment. Uh, Professor, while I've got you, let me ask you a follow-up question. As uh, as uh, your colleague there told us, uh, Professor Poneroff, he mentioned how the opinion by Justice Barrett relied, I think, to the greatest degree on the statute's use of the passive voice. What's your feeling, if any? about the use of passive voice in interpreting a statute?
3: Well, I think of all of the weak and inconsequential interpretive tools that Congress had, this may have been the least meaningful and least effective tool. I mean, to to go back to square one, when you interpret the bankruptcy code, and you look at the purpose of the discharge sections, they are to protect a debtor and to protect the fresh start. I mean, this is the linchpin of individual bankruptcy law to rely upon what what the court called a grammatical tool, which is really nothing more than a stylistic tool, to essentially come to the conclusion, to, to use their word, that Congress was agnostic, in drafting this exception to discharge, that that they were agnostic to the plight of the debtor, and didn't care whose fraud caused the loss, is so profoundly alien to everything in modern bankruptcy law that I I just thought the the interpretive tool was inappropriate and weak, and um, you know it, it did not do justice or to to the problem before
1: the court. Well, tell you what, let's turn to a, a different question, and that is the court's reliance on the Supreme Court's 1885, not 1985, but 1885 decision in string. Now, when you read the opinion by Justice Barrett, one would, be led to believe, although she doesn't say so, that straying is universally accepted and not criticized. But professors, uh, has straying been subjected to academic criticism in the last few decades?
2: It has. Um, It it is not as straightforward. And and I mentioned this in my previous comments. I knew we'd get to this. Um, It is not as straightforward as uh, justice Uh, Barrett suggested in the majority opinion. On the other hand, um, this was a decision uh, under a precursor of 523A2, which recognized vicarious liability uh, in bankruptcy litigation. Um, Of course, there were two major bankruptcy reform acts since the 1867 Mm -hmm. Act where Congress could have changed the rule, Did not, and of course, Congress is presumed to enact legislation with knowledge of existing um, precedent under um, earlier uh, acts. And uh, indeed, and we mentioned this in our brief, every edition of Collier's, going back to Collier's first, uh, published shortly after the 1898 act, um, has, uh, recognized the viability of Strang uh, as to the question of imputed liability for uh, a debt based on fraud, other than involving a, a written statement. Yeah. So I, I think that you know there's there is a strong argument that Strang is still good authority, um, but uh, I I think the, the majority was a bit. Disingenuous and suggest this is not a question that's free from doubt.
1: Well, listen, let me ask you all about another Supreme Court case, specifically Bullock versus uh, Bank Champagne in 2013. That involved non dischargeability for defalcation under 523A4. And in that case, uh, the Supreme Court said that defalcation requires a culpable state of mind, and so therefore, if you yourself were not culpable, it was not dischargeable as to uh, as to you. And, and defalcation being similar to fraud, how does the court uh, get around Bullock and find that uh, 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 Ms. Barton Worfer? Has a non-dischargeable debt, but it wasn't non-dischargeable in Bullock.
3: Well, I don't think they do. I think I think to me, it's not just a Bullock question. This is the Neil v. Clark question. Just brought more current. Look, what Neil v. Clark held was that in order to deny a discharge, there had to be moral turpitude and intention. Had to be culpability, the exact same word, and intentionality. And when Congress adopted the 1978 code, they expressly stated they were codifying Neil v. Clark. And they made no mention of Strang. So I think the the to answer both of the last two questions, I think the court didn't really look deep enough to see whether or not Congress had intended to override or move past Strang. And in the 1898 Act, which was really the first revision after Strang. A, they make no mention of Strang, which is very important. And the legislative history, you know, refers to the army of crippled individuals who need relief. And then when you go to the 1978 Act and they codify Neil V. Clark requiring culpability, it seemed to me that Congress is signaling that they've moved past Strang. And and that argument really needed to be addressed, whether Congress really intended to Bring forward this notion that Strang that you know vicarious liability. Uh, I think the other formulation in Neil v. Clark was that there was not to be implied or constructive liability, and vicarious liability, which is what Barton Werfer is all about, is a form of constructive liability. And I, I, to my read of the legislative history and the, and the two enactments. I think there's a very strong case that Congress intended to push Strang to the side, that they probably should have done a better job of saying that, and they didn't, so they left us with these two inconsistent decisions. Um, but, but I think both Neil and the uh, and, uh, uh, case you mentioned, I think they both are attempting to make culpability of the debtor the touchstone of the loss of discharge.
1: You know, I have a question for you as a sort of a general principle. I have heard from people who have worked on Capitol Hill that sometimes Congress will leave questions in a statute unanswered simply because if they were to answer it one way or the other, it might not pass. Do you think this is a situation in which Congress intended for the courts to make this very decision.
2: Well, I'll, I'll, I'll jump in to say I have no idea. <laughs> um, I, I think that uh, y- you know you, you do have to, I mean, there are places equitable subordination, right? Congress signaled that it wanted the doctrine to be developed by the courts. Um, but you know what we've seen with respect to the fraud exception, is except in inconsequential uh, grammatical ways, the exception has been uh, 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 crafted the same in the 1867 Act, the 1898 Act, and uh, the 1978 Act. So um, I- I'm without some signal, I'm, I'm dubious that that was. Uh, Congress's Mm -hmm. intent was drop back 10 and punt it to the
1: courts. Yeah, I would agree with that. Okay, well, listen here. I have a question for you in terms of trends. In light of this latest decision from the Supreme Court, which is tough on individuals in bankruptcy, do you all see any trends in the Supreme Court with regard to individuals in decisions from the courts last several terms.
3: Well, I certainly do. I think, as as you both know, I've been doing amicus briefs for the past ten years, and <laughs> mostly on you know behalf of debtors, and I'm proud to say I've been on the losing side in fourteen of them, which I simply means I represent the voice of a potential better side of justice. So, if you look, I went back and I looked at my list of amicus briefs, and uh, I made a quick list. But but it's very interesting because I think you do see a pattern. I started with Bank of America versus Colcat, in which we tried to get the Supreme Court to back off from Doosnep so that individual debtors could cram down you know the value on their homes, and um, you know it was argued by Stephanos Bebas, who now sits on the Third Circuit, and the court refused to do that, even though I think everybody knows that that the Doosnep decision is probably one of the worst that's been decided. And um so then we had Husky v. Ritz in 2016, in which the, the the court expanded denial of a discharge under 523A2. We had Lamar versus Appling in 2018. They enlarged the exception to loss of discharge to include the use of a single statement uh, respecting financial condition. Then in 2018, we did it, took another shot at Duzenup and Ritter v. Brady, and they refused to accept cert. Taggart versus Lorenz in 2018 held that a creditor who violates the discharge injunction can't be liable for damages if there's a fair ground for debate that the discharge doesn't apply. Chicago v. Fulton 2020 automatic stay doesn't pertain to when a creditor uh, refuses to return a car to a debtor. And then two denials of CERT National Med versus US Bank refusal to award uh, punitive damages for a person injured by an involuntary petition. And since Senec versus PHH uh, denied cert where the creditor was a serial violator of rule 3002. So all I can say from looking at these now nine cases, somehow in the court's psychology, is I think a very uh, fatal misunderstanding of the importance of the discharge. And, and this gets me back if I might just for one moment. I think the, the, the meta concern that I have about this case is that the court has devalued the importance of the discharge. You know, the, the very first sentence begins with what Larry began with that, you know, there's a balance between creditor and debtor protection. But that's really not what Congress has been saying since 1898. What they've really been saying is that they've perceived a watershed turn from where bankruptcy was a creditor collection activity to providing debtors with a fresh start. And I try to emphasize that in our amicus briefs. And I think for the last nine years, the court has been oddly inattentive to the academic writing on the importance of the discharge, and uh, including academics like Charles Tabb and like Elizabeth Warren. So I do think there's a trend for a reason. And Barton Werfer is a very serious part of that trend in which the value of the discharge is undervalued. And I just want to make one last comment on that. This case should have begun with a quote from local loan or Charles Tabb that the discharge in bankruptcy is the most important event in bankruptcy history. Instead, it began with a quote that creditor protection and debtor protection, you know, are both of equal legal and moral value. and And that's simply no longer true.
2: I Thank you, would not, sorry. Yeah. Um, go ahead,
1: uh, Professor Bonaroff.
2: I, I would not disagree with David about the trend. There's been a couple of outliers. Uh, Marama versus what Citizens National Bank, Harris v. Veaglen, which were um, more better um, focused. Um, although I, I question if the trend is so much a product of intentionality by the court um, as it is that to me, it seems for probably decades now, DeuceNup being the exception the court has tended to use bankruptcy cases to advance a plain meaning uh, interpretation of, of uh, approach to statutory interpretation. I think this case was um, a, uh, a perfect um, example of that. Um, and I don't disagree about the importance of the discharge. By the way, um, and, and I, I said this um, to Professor Cuny, I don't like the, I think the case was correctly decided. I don't particularly like um, the outcome, and I would be fine if Congress were to decide to, um, as it clearly has the power to do, if Congress were to decide that in bankruptcy cases, we're gonna depart from the state law rule of vicarious liability under 523A2. But, Again, it, it's important to recognize that we never get to Section 523A until it's determined that the debtor's entitled to um, a discharge. Now we're simply looking at because of competing social policies, should particular debts be carved out um, of that. Um, uh, discharge. So the point is, the consequences of a determination of non-dischargeability for a particular debt are far less devastating for the debtor than, for example, an order denying discharge um, outright. Uh,
3: yeah. Except in this case. I mean, I, th- I do think you know sometimes the law doesn't really matter how badly somebody is mauled, but I think the, the I think the public listeners would be misled to think that this wasn't a, a devastating, life-crippling sentence for Kate Bartonwerfer. And, you know, in terms of textualism, uh, I want to go back to what happened to oral argument, because I do agree the court is, to me, the court is searching for low-hanging fruit, and that means they want to either borrow from the common law, or they want to try to find what the plain meaning is. But, you know, if you look at the transcript from oral argument, there were three key comments that were made. One, the language was found to be anomalous, haphazard, and potentially careless. Now, I take that to mean that the court was disturbed by the lack of coherency and consistency in 523. And I I also take that to mean they found there was something ambiguous in this language, something that made them uncomfortable, which is maybe why, you know, you dislike the outcome. So... Once you accept the notion that there's a potential ambiguity or anomaly within a code, then you've got to look to the overarching policy concerns of Congress. And, and once you do that, you've got to ask yourself if culpability and intentionality are the drivers of loss of discharge, how do you possibly fit that into their interpretation of A2? And in my view, the answer is you simply cannot do it. Look, the bottom line from this decision is a totally innocent debtor, Kate Barton Werfer, can lose a discharge through no fault of her own and be economically ruined for the rest of her life. And I would suggest that is not the intent that Congress had in mind when it you know, adopted the
1: 78 code. Well, I'll tell you what, the bottom line is this. Our two professors here we're on opposite sides of the outcome of this case. However, they both agree, as do I, that this is an issue that Congress ought to visit, perhaps hold hearings, or perhaps quickly sign a bill that requires CNTR before fraud is non dischargeable in a bankruptcy case. By the way, before we end, I would like to mention that uh, Professor Cuny in the last dozen years has filed more amicus briefs in the Supreme Court, certainly on bankruptcy, than <laughs> anyone else on the face of the earth probably ever has. <laughs> or should. <laughs> <laughs> and Professor Poneroff is in a close second, case, uh, second place. To the extent that any of you out there in the audience have cases that need amicus briefs or perhaps assistance on the briefing itself in a court of appeals or in the Supreme Court. Please feel free to call those professors. They may be able to help. Well, I think we're about done here. John Hartkin, I hand it back to you.
0: Thank you, Bill. And thank you, Larry and David for your time and providing your views on this very important case. And you can listen to this and more than 200 other ABI podcasts in the newsroom of abi.org. Once again, thank you to our guests, Bill, for moderating, and to you for listening to this edition of ABI Podcast. Stay safe and have a wonderful day.